This lecture series is in the study of dictatorship, democracy, and genocide. It was established in 2009 through a generous gift from Dr. Abel's widow, Iris Abel. Dr. Abel's son, Matt, joins us this evening, and I wish to extend, and I hope you will all extend with me, a welcome to him and a special thanks for the family's generosity, which allows us to bring the speaker here tonight. The role of the Able Endowed Lecture Series is to bring distinguished scholars to the campus of Central Michigan University to discuss the impact of worldwide genocide. And our speaker tonight promises to expand our knowledge base and prompt us to think about current issues facing the citizens of Northern Africa and its neighboring regions. At this time, I would like to invite Dr. Sterling Johnson to come forward. Dr. Johnson will provide the introduction for tonight's guest speaker. Thank you, and uh, as Dr. Gates says, welcome to the uh, for, fourth speaker in this series. About 16 years ago, when a little country the size of Maryland, Rwanda, exploded in violence, 800,000 people were massacred within 30 days, and there was not a lot of American coverage of this, but I remember watching some documentaries, and in one of those documentaries, some Dr. Prunier appeared, and he was very vocal, and he kind of threw down the gauntlet, challenging the world to live up to its responsibilities, and not only end these type of atrocities, but also challenging the world to bring uh, these perpetrators to justice. Well, these atrocities continue. And they continue in Africa, Asia, Latin America, the Middle East, and uh, we're no closer to stopping them, even though we have set up some institutions to do so. Dr. Prunier has been uh, important in keeping the world focused on these issues. Uh, he is a consultant, political consultant, but he's been attached to the National Center for Scientific Research in France. He's the author of 170 articles, six books, and I believe he speaks at least six languages. I often see him, uh, his articles in the Financial Times, and I know he also is a regular contributor to Le Figaro, the, the, the Paris newspaper. He was very much involved in making certain that the horrible consequences of the, that the consequences of the recent election in Sudan did not escalate into renewed bloodshed and violence, where we'd have war, more war crimes, crimes against humanity, perhaps genocide. He was very much involved in negotiating uh, the outcomes of, of this, getting uh, a peace settlement. He's a scholar, peacekeeper, and a peacemaker, in my view. And what makes him even more interesting is the only guy I know who had a hit put on him by Muammar Gaddafi. So, please welcome to Mount Pleasant, 
Michigan, Central Michigan University, Dr. Gerard Prunier. Thank you. Um, Dr. Johnson, you're very indiscreet, you know, telling um, that actually the Libyans wanted to kill me. I don't know if uh, Gaddafi ever knew, uh, but they were definitely Libyans. And that, that goes back uh, 24 years ago, so let bygones be bygones. Uh, <laughs> um, when uh, we... Um, we met uh, in Washington last year in November. Uh, you were telling me that you would like me to come here to talk about the probable secession of southern Sudan because this was going to be a momentous event. For the first time, the um, uh, charter of uh, the Organization of African Unity, Article 4B, says that all borders out of colonial times should be preserved. Um, therefore, secession is a dirty word particularly in Africa. Uh, so you said, well, this time there will be a secession, most likely, because the vote will probably end up with a secession. Um, and um, it will be consensual. That is, people will accept it. It's, it's, it's a big change compared to what there was before. And um, we decided it would be an interesting thing to talk about. Uh, little did we know that by the time I would be here, you know, this would have happened. And uh, as this is the last issue of The Economist, um, the question is perfectly apt. Where are we going? This, this is the biggest event in uh, world history since the fall of communism. Um, so uh, instead of speaking, I will mention the Sudan briefly tonight, but I think that, uh, you know, getting a broader look at what is happening in the Arab world, and the Sudan, by the way, is only half Arab. It's a, it's a hinge country between the Arab world and black Africa. Um, meanwhile, this has happened, and this is momentous. By the way, I'm very familiar with the Middle East. I speak Arabic. I had not seen it coming. I'm an expert, supposedly. No. I will not try to lie and say, oh, yes, I knew it. No. I had gotten used to the bad old way. You know, um, I was talking with a young lady here who uh, is a teacher. I, sorry, I don't remember your name. And she was, we were talking about Central Europe. And I said, yeah, when I used to go to communist countries in the 60s and 70s, we were used to that. We thought it would last forever. And then one day, poof, it went. Uh, this was the same with the dictatorships in the Arab world. Um, I lived in Cairo some years ago when I was uh, trying to learn Arabic with moderate success. Um, and, um, you know, I, I thought Mubarak would last forever. Um, unfortunately, uh, the State Department, they also thought that Mubarak would last forever. So there was a little bit of a chill when he went. What has happened and where does this end? It started in a very strange way by one man committing suicide. It was a rather peculiar suicide that 
told a lot to what was going on in the Arab world. Um, that was in November last year, at the end of November or beginning of December. I don't remember the exact date. And we should remember his name because this very humble man was called Mohamed Bouazizi. He lived in a little town, little town in Tunisia, not in Tunis, a place called Sidi Bouzid. And um, he was a graduate, university graduate. You know, like uh, Tunisia prided itself on being um, a Western-oriented country with, uh, you know, broad education and, um, you know, everybody went to school and uh, many people went to university and only to discover that they were unemployed. So this poor guy went to university, was unemployed, and he ended up selling fruits in the street with a little place, you know, like this he carried. And um, they, this was forbidden because you had to have a license and you had to pay some money to the government to be allowed to do that. So he got arrested periodically by the police. And there, in beginning of December, um, it was a police woman who arrested him. And you know, in the Muslim world, women are seen as inferior, um, but some of them now are educated, they get jobs. So this woman, somebody inferior in his eyes, had a job, he didn't, and she slapped him in public. She said, you remove your junk from here. This is illegal. And you know, in a small town where everybody knows everybody. So this guy is slapped by a policewoman and he says, this is my life. I am nothing. So he bought some gasoline, poured it on himself and set himself on fire. This man didn't realize that by dying, he was going to start something that was way bigger than his own person. Uh, by the way, he's become a kind of national hero, of course, in a posthumous way. Um, uh, two and a half months later, on, on January 14th, President Ben Ali ran away from Tunisia after street demonstrations made it absolutely impossible for him to continue unless he would shoot hundreds and hundreds of demonstrators. They killed, grand total was very limited. In Tunisia, it, did, it was not very bloody. About 70 or 80 people died. But there you had a, a Western-oriented government, not a democratic one, huh? not a democratic one. Because even if the title of these uh, lectures is Democracy, Dictatorship, and Genocide, uh, in the Arab world, we had dictatorship everywhere. Um, now, democracy is moving forward at an incredibly swift pace, completely driven internally and not by the US Army, as your president thought in 2003 he could do, which doesn't seem to have worked very well. Uh, but this time it's um, from inside. It's completely different. Uh, so dictatorship is being replaced by democracy. I hope genocide is not the order of the day. I don't think it should be, although we never know. You know, in such tense and explosive political times, God knows what can happen. But this thing, this spark that started in Tunisia, perhaps, uh, could we have the map now? Um, it, yes, thank you very much. Okay. Whoops. Yes. Okay. Up there. One of the 
what is collectively called Maghreb, which means West in Arabic, Al-Maghrib, that is the three former French colonies of Morocco, Algeria, and Tunisia. We'll see that the situation is very different in the three different countries. Tunisia was the most prosperous one and prided itself in, I would say, fake democracy. Um, that didn't help, and uh, Ben Ali had to go. And then we began to realize what was the reality behind his regime, the absolute incredible utter corruption. The fact, for example, I'll give you, I'll give you an interesting example. You have no big company in um, big firm in Tunisia. Why? Because when somebody is in business and he got to a certain level, a certain uh, um, uh, you know, volume of trade, the company would be um, taken over by the Ben Ali family, especially the family of his wife, you know, Leila Trabulsi. Um, and also that's another pattern. These ladies have been incredible. The wives of dictators are worse than their husbands. Um, and they are usually in business, and they usually have very large families, and their large families have a very large appetite. So it's the brother-in-law, the cousin, the uncle, the, you know, a whole clan. And the pattern is the same everywhere. Now, um, I'm French. This is a former French colony where, you know, there are thousands, I mean, there are perhaps two or three hundred thousand Tunisians in France. We had no idea, I'm not a specialist of the Maghrib, we had no idea what was going on. It was only after the fall of the dictatorship that we began to realize the reality. And we realized that these friends of the West, and of course, it was all based on putting Islamic militants in jail. You know, like, you guys are scared because you think Al-Qaeda, 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 you know. Like, um, so I'm going to be a good boy. I put all these guys behind bars. So, of course, you cannot reproach me for anything. Meanwhile, in the back, a number of things happen. Don't look at them. They have no interest to you. You know, you stay in France, you do your business, you give us money, you send us tourists. This was a big tourist destination. You know, every year you had maybe uh, two or three hundred thousand French people who went there for the nice beaches. And then we, we began that even to realize the tourist industry was completely in the hands of the president and his family. So this was the beginning. Within uh, days, actually, Ben Ali fled on January 14th. The first demonstration started in Egypt on the 25th. Um, there, you had another regime which was friend of the West, friend of the Americans, friend of Europeans, you know, anti-Islamists, putting all the Islamic militants in jail. You know, this is a wonderful process. It used to be the communists. Each time there was social unrest somewhere, the local dictator would put communists in jail. Um, some of them were, some of them were not. You know. Now, in the Muslim world, it's Islamists. Any problem, we put them in jail. And then we tell the Americans we need more money because, you know, there is a great danger, Al-Qaeda, this, you know. And uh, usually we, we go to the uh, wicket and uh, we pay. You know, whether it's the Americans or the Europeans, everybody, and Mubarak was 
a master at that game. He was the number two beneficiary of American aid in the world, immediately after Israel, an interesting point. Uh, and he was being paid, basically, because uh, Anwar Sadat, the man who got killed in 1980, um, uh, the previous president, was the only major Arab leader who had made peace with Israel and given the strength of the Israeli lobby in Washington. Um, he had become the darling of America overnight. Uh, and he was sure, he made sure, that the money would be forthcoming. You know, now, two-thirds of the food in Egypt is American. Uh, Egypt is completely incapable of feeding itself. With a population of almost 80 million people and an agriculture which hasn't changed much since the Middle Ages, uh, Egypt is completely uh, at the mercy of American food aid. And you know, this good old dictator was there. He had been there for 32 years, and everybody was used to him. And then suddenly, you know, his population said, no, we don't want him. And people were actually completely surprised by their own daring. I remember in, uh, in the 80s, uh, being in Cairo, and uh, I had a friend who was... Uh, a Sudanese political leader. He was the president of the Union of Sudanese Lawyers. And he had an office in the center of downtown Cairo. Um, and when I went to visit him, I heard these absolute horrible screams. And I said, what's going on? He said, oh, I'm sorry, I apologize. And he closed the windows. And I said, what is this? He said, I'm next to a police station. And the screams where people were brought there for torture. And uh, so I said, can I look? Oh, he said, oh, yes, they come about every hour. So I looked out of the window for the next cargo. And I saw, um, you know, um, one of these police vans come and people being tossed out like, you know, packages and being dragged into the building. Ten minutes later, the screams were added again. He said, oh, yeah, these are Islamists or supposed Islamists. And the guy, by the way, was definitely not an Islamist because since in uh, Sudan, you know, uh, you, know you had uh, an Islamist regime and he was a definitely secular man and he was a lawyer, he was Western educated, he was completely against the Islamists. He said, but these people are creating Islamist militants by the day. You know? Because when you're treated like that under the pretense of being an Islamist, even if you're not, plus you have relatives, can you imagine, <clears throat> we should always remember, why was Lenin a revolutionary? Because the Tsar hanged his brother. I mean, this is how it all started. Lenin's older brother was hanged by the Tsar. And uh, that sort of played a role in his life. So uh, this lawyer friend was telling me they're making Islamists every day. And, but people were used to that, you know. Uh, we're used to the bad old ways, the bad old days. That's the way it was. Um, and, well, I lived in Cairo. I have a lot of Egyptian friends, uh, you know, and uh, I did not see it coming. And suddenly one day the taboo was broken. People were down in the street. And since Mubarak was a mild dictator, uh, after about one month, he decided, okay, enough is enough. There this time, they killed about 200. It was, you know, the figure was ratcheting up. About at the same time, 
Complicati effect, if you want to call it. Things started both in Libya and in a tiny little place, uh, whoops, whoops, no, there, there, in Bahrain. Bahrain, I'm sure you, very few of you had heard of it before. It's um, perhaps one third of Delaware. It's a tiny, tiny little emirate which is part of the United Arab Emirates. And um, the reasons, and this is very interesting, what happened in Libya and what was happening over there had absolutely nothing to do with each other. Briefly, here we have a madman uh, who has uh, been a dictator for 42 years, has invented his own version of Islam, uh, has declared that... Uh, he wants to get married to Egypt, married to Sudan, married to Algeria. He wants to conquer Chad. He always felt too big for his country, you know, like, uh, I have a lot of money, I'm a big man, and uh, my country is only, you know, uh, 8 million people, and, uh, you know, I need something bigger. Uh, so it's a megalomaniac with a lot of money and no real political clout except his nuisance capacity. Let's blow up an airliner, let's uh, uh, conquer a country, let's make war. He made wars all over, you know. Um, I used to live, uh, oops, uh, where is it? Uh, yeah, it's not, uh, the name is not there, but it's a country called Uganda. I used to live there. Um, during Idi Amin's time, he was a famous dictator in Uganda in the 70s, uh, the Libyan army was in Uganda to protect that man, who was a perfectly horrible man. Another one who tried to kill me. Uh, but, um, you know, living in Africa can be a little bit eventful at times. Um, and um, the Libyans were all over the place in dubious, dubious battles. So there, you know, it's a very bizarre thing. Here, nothing at all to do with that. I mean, Bahrain is very, very small, incapable of doing anything nasty or... It doesn't even have an army, or yeah, it might have an army, but it has 300 soldiers in it, something like that. Um, why was there a problem in Bahrain? This tiny, tiny little speck on the map, which, by the way, is the biggest American base in the Gulf area. Was it because of the Americans? No, not at all. Why then? Ah, a little bit of a problem for people who are not familiar with Islam. The population of Bahrain is Shiite. That is the same as the branch of Islam which is majority in Iran. You have Shiites all over um, the Arab world, but a minority. In, apart from Iran, which is not an Arabic country, yeah? um, it's Persian, it's completely different. They use the Arabic script, but they write another language. They speak another language. Uh, they are Shiites, the majority. Uh, 85 or 90 percent. Iraq is the only country where you have a, a slight majority. Nobody knows exactly, but at least the Shiites are probably about 50 percent of the population, perhaps even 60 percent. And then you have little spots of Shiites all over the place. You have one here, 
There is an island at the tip of Tunisia called Djerba, which is, strangely enough, Shiite. Um, you have this corner of Saudi Arabia, which is Shiite. You have parts of Yemen here, especially, that are Shiites. And the Shiites and the Sunni are exactly like the Catholics and Protestants in 16th century Europe. You know, uh, can we kill them? Can we kill them? Yeah, well, you know, like, uh, really friendly. And uh, so um, there is no love lost between them at all. Um, now, this tiny little speck there, whoops, yeah, it's working, yeah. Uh, this uh, tiny little speck is Shiite, but the Sultan, the king of Bahrain, the Emir, is Sunai. Aha! That is, he belongs to the majority branch of Islam, while his people belong, 90% of them, to this minority branch of Islam linked with Iran. And there is a military base there, U.S., the largest one in the Gulf. So maybe you begin to see a shape. Um, these Shiites say, we don't want our king. We, we want to throw him out. We want a, a king of our own religion, like us. And the Saudi, who are Sunni, and very radical, very extreme, mainstream Sunni, said, out of the question. Absolutely out of the question. Especially because the adjacent areas next to Bahrain are also Shiite inside Saudi. So you begin to see the contamination possibility. If these guys start doing what they want to do, it might contaminate us. It might fire backwards out of the question. And the Americans began to say, oh my God, you know, what, what do we do with this? We're sitting on this bomb. These people are quarreling under, under our chair. We're sitting on the chair and they're handling grenades and explosives under the chair. And what are we to do? So they look the other way. You know? They sort of say, Bahrain, where is it? Oh, you mean we have 15,000 soldiers there? Oh, but we're not really aware of where it is. Uh, oh, yeah, these people have problems. It's none of our doing, which was true. Uh, but it could affect us. Yes, indeed. So, I mean, these two things, Libya and what was happening there, were completely different. In both cases, they exploded. And they ended up, this time, for the first time, not a peaceful revolution, but into military action. Well, in Libya, uh, you know quite well, because uh, the show is still on the road. Uh, we don't know how it will end. Probably with Gaddafi being overthrown, but it is not sure, not sure. Because, you see, Libya is made of three units. You have this part, which is called Tripolitania, or I'm using the old Turkish words, because this was part of the Turkish Empire till 1911, when the Italians occupied it. Uh, this part here is called Cyrenaica, and the capital is Benghazi here. The capital of Tripolitania is Tripoli here. And then you have the big southern part, this part, which is called Fezzan. And Fezzan, there is nobody, but the oil is there. So there are no people, but there is lots of that 
you know, dirty, squishy liquid that um, is so essential to the life of our world. Um, Libya produces only about 2% of the world's oil. So it's a medium-sized producer, but very, very good crude. Uh, it can be refined by any refinery, you know, like uh, some crude uh, is very difficult. This one is the crude. Everybody can drink it. Excellent. Uh, which is not the case. For example, the Sudanese crude is terrible, terrible. There are only two refineries in the world that can handle it because it's full of sulfur. Um, Libya exploded, and the three pieces are now really three pieces. They went back to what it was at the beginning of the last century. Gaddafi holds this, Tripolitania. The rebels hold this, Cyrenaica. And Fizan is the apple of discord that they could be fighting for tomorrow. Right now, they have other business to do because there, you know, there is nobody down there. Uh, so they are fighting each other around here. Ajdabia is here, somewhere on the coast. Uh, this is a full-scale civil war. Um, so far, not, not too murderous. My estimate is about 12,000 casualties so far. Uh, but they're trying to do better every day. Um, the airstrikes have put uh, some hope for the rebels. If it was not for the airstrikes, uh, the rebels would have been crushed last Friday. Now they've got a fighting chance, but Gaddafi might keep power in here. Um, he has expelled all the foreign companies, mostly uh, American and French. He can survive without them. How will he do it? He will call in the Chinese. Uh, probably the Belarusians, the Moldavians, uh, the Ukrainians. And um, he will sell them discount oil at a discount price and buy guns with the proceeds and um, survive. This is a distinct possibility. Or he has to be killed within the next few days, which is what I hope, but uh, it might not work. Uh, he tries not to get killed. And he's pretty good at it. Uh, you know, uh, I, I used to see him quite often. I, these last nine years, I was living here, you know, in Addis Abeba, and, um, which is the seat of uh, the African Union. And uh, I used to see him when he was coming for African Union meetings, and he, he walked like Robocop. Like and uh, the reason is that he got six bullets in his body here, actually in the, the area which is now in, uh, which is always an anti-Gaddafi area, because it is home to a brotherhood called uh, Senusia, uh, Muslim Brotherhood. They, do, they don't like Gaddafi at all. So one day he came and they shot him, and he got six bullets in him. They could extract four, but two have remained in his back spine, which is the reason why he walks so stiffly, because the doctor said, if we remove that, you'll be quadriplegic. And uh, he said, no, thank you. So he gets about six shots of morphine a day, which is the reason why his face is so puffy. Uh, he's a courageous man, uh, like a lot of cruel dictators, so he might die on the job. Uh, but, uh, you know, the likelihood that he would be like Mubarak and Ben Ali, very polite and would walk away, is very low. He's going to go to the bitter end. Now, 
this tiny spot there is not gone so bad because the Saudi were quicker and the place was smaller. The Saudis told the Americans, we're going to go and take it over and kill the people we don't like. The Americans say, all right, please don't tell us. Uh, and uh, so the Saudis did exactly what they said. They got about a thousand men in there. Uh, that was, um, I believe, on the 14th of March. It's, um, it's under the heading of uh, the Gulf Cooperation Council, which is a kind of regional body, uh, which uh, uh, Oman is a member, the United Arab Emirates, uh, Kuwait, and Saudi Arabia, which, as you can see, is by far the biggest guy on the block. Um, they drove their soldiers into Bahrain. It's very convenient. Although it's an island, there is a bridge uh, between, <laughs> between the island and, and Saudi Arabia. So they said, sorry, the revolution is over. People said, what, what, what? Mm, too late, it's over. So now, um, what would be, of course, the Iranians were completely furious because they had a few fingers in there, given the fact that the Shiite population was kind of, they were hoping natural allies, and they would love to have natural allies surrounding the greater American naval base in the area. Kind of good for them. So this is a situation that remains to be seen, but it's definitely not over. Um, now, is it all? No, it is not all. All over the place, I tell you. Um, so, next in line uh, for fun and games, Yemen. Now, Yemen is a completely different situation because there had been a low-intensity uh, civil war going on since 2004, way before all this happened. Um, now, Yemen, in fact, is made of several pieces, and North Yemen is here. South Yemen goes like this, like this, like this, you know, the, uh, with all the seafront down here. And here, the, the capital, the harbor of Aden, just, you know, just on the other side from Africa. Um, North Yemen was never colonized. South Yemen was occupied by the Brits in 1834, and they evacuated it in 1967. The two countries were forcibly reunited by the North, who conquered the South in uh, 1990. The Southerners did not appreciate. They broke away again in 1994, and they were again brought back by force into unity with the North. So what you have had now in the last few years since 2004 were three different civil wars going on at the same time. One was here in the northernmost area here among a Shiite minority called the Houthi uh, who rebelled against um, the government for all kinds of tribal and religious reasons. There you had the southerners who wanted, as usual, to regain their independence, which was forcibly suppressed last time in 94. Plus, the biggest Al-Qaeda operation 
outside of uh, Pakistan and Afghanistan. Um, I mean, this is the only Arab country where Al-Qaeda has really serious uh, grounding. And uh, the government of Ali Abdullah Saleh, uh, which had been in power since 1978, so I mean, this, is, this was one of these dictatorships, you know, that never end, it was, of course, totally supported by the Americans because they were fighting against Al-Qaeda. In fact, Ali Abdullah Saleh thought that the war against Al-Qaeda was secondary that the key war for him were the Houthi and the secession of the South. So he told the Americans, give me the money against Al-Qaeda, but I've got my own uses for that. Uh, and, of course, it was, you know, the bad old days going on, and suddenly, in February, it flared up. When, uh, you know, this succession of things happened in Egypt, uh, in Tunisia, uh, you know, and, uh, and then uh, later in Libya, um, they said, okay, now is our time. Let's go. Let's do it. And, you know, like uh, last, I think it was last Tuesday, the government totally lost control of itself and started shooting demonstrators. You know, 52 people were killed in one afternoon. Uh, so now the situation is very likely to crack. And this is a new thing. All these countries are unlikely to be divided like Tunisia and Egypt. It's out of the question there. We'll stay. Libya might crack up for a while, but it could also be reunited later. In Yemen, if Ali Abdullah Saleh goes, finished. Country blows up. Uh, the South will immediately proclaim its independence. The northern rebels will refuse to obey any government that they don't control, and they are unlikely to gain control of the government. They are too small. They are not big enough. So, uh, and this is a key American ally, and it's likely to just go pop. So, you know, this is the, the difficult thing to understand. Libya, which was hated by the Americans, is going. Um, Yemen, or Egypt, which were friends of the Americans, are also going. It is not the American factor. This is, you know, this is the main difference with what happened in Iraq after 2003, where the Americans were the movers and shakers, or the ones who were moved and shaken, I don't know. Uh, it went both ways. Uh, but they are, no, they are present on the scene. I mean, their existence is there in military terms, in financial terms, they are not the key variable. Things are happening outside of their control. Not actually against them either. It's simply elsewhere. It's another world. I mean, these people are now changing the way they relate to political power. This is much closer to what you had with the French Revolution in 1789 or to the Russian Revolution or whatever. This is a social, economic, political revolution happening from inside. The relationship with foreign countries, be it the United States or any other, is not the key part. And, last but not least, the surprise of the Islamists. Now, since 9-11, we have been told, this was the common wisdom, that in the Arab world, if anybody challenged the existing political power, it would come from these radical Islamists, Al-Qaeda and assorted villains. Well, this time, 
they hardly do anything. They're, they're there. Um, they're saying, hey, we're here. We're ugly, terrible, radical Muslims. And people say, that's nice, fine. Uh, we got other business to do. Uh, and people say, oh my God, but perhaps we were wrong about the diagnosis of the po nature of the political crisis in the Islamic world. Because these guys, who are terrible, radical Muslims and so on, are somehow running after the demonstration saying, hey, what's the latest slogan? You know, like, tell us, please, so we can shout with the others. Uh, and uh, that's not, uh, they were supposed to be the guys in the forefront, the guys leading it. They are not. So, you know, there is a kind of puzzlement. Uh, perhaps there was something else we did not understand, we didn't see. Um, it's, of course, much less threatening to Europeans and Americans, but it's also a kind of intellectual puzzle because it shows that the real transformation of the Arabic world over the last 20, 30 years, we did not really understand. I mean, it's not that the Muslim radicals are not there. Of course they are. But they are one part of the whole picture. Well, of late, if you think of two, three, four, five years ago, they were supposed to be the whole picture. And this is what the, all these dictators, and even actually, if you remember, if you followed closely at the beginning, even terrible Muhammad Gaddafi was saying, it's me or Al-Qaeda. I thought it was highly you know, hilarious. Because uh, suddenly, uh, you know, Gaddafi saying, you know, I'm the recourse of peace and democracy because the ugly ones are on the other side. I, I thought it was rather funny. Um, and then after a while, he sort of gave up, you know, because he realized that this argument was not taking him very far. Uh, but the, the, the whole thing, you know, this was the case with Ben Ali. This was the case with Mubarak. We are here because we are your friends. And the bad Islamists we put in jail, you know. And this is our raison d'etre. This is what we are. Uh, and suddenly, poof, that's not the way it works. And now it's spreading even further because here, one of the hardest and ugliest regimes in the Arab world, Syria, has been contaminated in its turn. And that is something that, frankly, I mean, my hat off to the people who are demonstrating in the streets of Dera and uh, assorted places in Syria. Because this is, whoops, yep, it's, uh, it's not the Gaddafi-like regime. It's cold-blooded, well-organized, very systematic. Uh, it's not the erratic uh, Libyan dictator. But it is also a very cold-blooded killing machine. To give you an example, in the year 1982, the Muslim Brotherhood carried out an insurrection in a city in the south of Syria here called Hama. Uh, the father of the present president, Hafiz al-Assad, surrounded the city and in one week killed 20,000 people. He just flattened the city, killed all the inhabitants, bulldozed it made it disappear from the surface of the earth. Um, so if you demonstrate against such a regime, it takes a lot of uh, courage, because you know what they are capable of doing. And actually, they have started doing it. Uh, you know, people uh, who, the big demonstration in Dera was in, in another southern town, which is here, uh, they immediately shot everybody who demonstrated. 
There were 50 or 60 people killed on the first day. So now there is a question. And by the way, you noticed I didn't speak about the Sudan, which is why I came here initially. Why? Because nothing is happening. So this begs a question. If all this is happening, and God knows this is big and momentous, um, because you know I'm not even mentioning the sideshows. There have been strong demonstrations in Morocco. Uh, I mean, even in tiny Djibouti, you see that little confetti there? On the 18th of February, there were 60,000 demonstrators in the street in a place which has been a total, absolute, complete dictatorship set up by the French when they left in 77, uh, for the past uh, 34 years. And uh, suddenly people were down in the streets, you know? Um, which uh, when you've never had, and this is a wonderful dictatorship. Ever since the French left, they never really left. They still have a big military base there, which they share with the Americans. Um, it's been not only the same clan, the same tribe, but the same family. And the first, the, the present president is the nephew of the previous one. So I mean, this has really been a completely a family business. And you have all the features with the very evil Mrs. President who is very rich and who has lots of relatives and they all have big appetites and, you know, the usual pattern. It's, it's all over the place now, all over. Uh, and uh, Sudan? No. Ha. Huh. Which begs the question, why not? You have a couple of places, like here, Algeria, like Sudan, and um, can we see, yeah, where is Jordan? Can we find, uh, yeah, it's there. Uh, nothing. So let us think a little bit about why nothing in other places. Which means, why is there something in the first place? First of all, all these troubles basically are political. People do not accept the relationship they have to a power that can say, we rigged the election and it is very good. We stay in power for 30 or 40 years, and we pretend it's a democracy. It's simply not working. Second point, what I would call poverty in the midst of plenty. Um, in Egypt, about 70% of the population lives with $2 a day. Uh, at the same time, everybody has TV, and they can watch Desperate Housewives. They think everybody in America has a mansion and six cars. Uh, when you have $2 a day and you have to live like that, it's kind of irritating. You think somebody's taking me for a fool, uh, which is actually the truth. Um, and the garments are obsolete. So this is a basic thing. Why is it that in some countries, um, and they have, what do they have in common? Nothing. You have three types of countries with nothing. That so far, so far, it doesn't mean forever, but so far I've escaped the phenomenon. What I would call the punch-drunk countries, and that applies to two of them, Algeria and the Sudan. Why is there nothing? Because they are coming out of hell. Because, you know, when I'm using punch drunk, I'm using the image of the boxer, you know, who's been hit and hit, 
and he's grabbing, he's on the ropes. He says, no, Oof, enough. Uh, in Sudan, 20 years of civil war, one half million casualties, and the fear that was uh, prevalent at the time of the referendum, uh, you know, that uh, Professor Johnson and I were discussing, you know, the place can blow up again if the referendum goes wrong. You know, the southern Sudan is, it's along that line, more or less like this, it's this, okay? The southern third, okay? But he's got 85% of the oil. And the fact that the north, the Arab north, let the non-Arab Christian south go is due to one thing, the fear of all what was happening all around. Bashir, the president of Sudan, northern Sudan, realized that he was in deep, deep trouble. And um, since he was afraid, he was very kind and nice to the southerners. Yes, you can have your referendum. Yes, you can have secession and so on. Uh, so for the time being, everything went smoothly because it was a positive effect if you wanted the revolutions in the other places. I'm in danger. I have to be very prudent. In Algeria, another punch-drunk country. In the 90s, 300,000 casualties in the civil war between a secular military government and uh, the Islamists. Uh, I mean, people have seen horrible things, you know, babies murdered in their cribs, um, you know, uh, ambushes on the roads with women with their, their breasts cut off, and you know, it was an incredibly violent war, which went almost unnoticed. In a, I mean, in France, we were very aware of it because we have half a million Algerians, uh, plus all their children living there. Uh, so we were quite aware of it. Um, and um, our government was closely allied to the military, who were committing 50% of the atrocities. Everybody was committing atrocities, both the Islamist rebels and the secular uh, so-called moderate uh, military uh, government. Um, everybody was committing atrocities. The French government was supporting one kind of atrocity against the other. Um, now, this is a punch-drunk country. People who have lived through that don't want any more. They, they just want to be left alone. So the countries that have been in extreme trouble, extreme suffering, are very peaceful right now. Other types of countries, and that's a more honorable thing, countries that are more or less well-run. This is the case of here of the Sultanate of Oman, which is a reasonable government, a traditional government with a uh, traditional monarchy, but constitutional in a way, but and um, you know fairly moderate. This is the case of Jordan, you know, Jordan, and um, this is also to some degree the case of Morocco, um, which you know, a fairly well-run country, so they have not known the extreme anger that has been present uh, in, in, uh, in other places. And then you have the countries that are totally crushed because of the strength, you know, which is the case of Saudi Arabia, and paradoxically Iran, the two enemies across the Gulf, both of them are such total, absolute, complete dictatorships uh, although this one is a so-called traditional monarchy, 
This one is the product of an Islamist revolution in the 70s. They're glaring at each other. One thing they have in common, excellent secret service, excellent police. Uh, so they're very quiet. Does it mean that all these countries are safe? No, not even them. In the present situation, even the punch-drunk countries, even the strong dictatorships are in danger. And they know it. They know it very well, which does not make them behave very nicely and peacefully. So I should stop at this point because I'm sure you have lots of uh, questions and, and details and doubts and, or things you don't agree with. And, uh, um, you know, part of the fun and game of such a situation is to get the feedback from the audience. So um, I'll stop here and uh, try to provide answers if I'm able. Good evening, and thank you for being here. Um, my question is regarding the ICC, really. So after we see these state crises, um, we're seeing an increased number of ICC indictments. And I'm, as a reaction to that, we're seeing um, some people in Africa supporting the people supporting those ICC um, trials and some people that are against those ICC trials because they want to forget about the conflict and move on with their lives. So I'm wondering, um, do you think that these ICC cases will set a precedent of justice and decrease the amount of state crises, or do you think they will become irrelevant because um, they have so far not succeeded in preventing any state crises? Uh, what, you're saying, what you're saying about uh, ICC concerns much more black Africa, because uh, the... Uh, I mean, the only place which is on the hinge is Sudan, with the president himself being indicted. But you have here in Uganda, it's a bunch of rebels, you know, who have been indicted uh, by uh, the ICC, the so-called Lord's Resistance Army. Although now they are not here anymore, uh, they are here in the southeastern corner of, I mean, they migrated across the Congo to the Central African Republic here. Um, so it's a completely different situation. You know, in one case, it's the president. Here, it's a bunch of rebels and guerrillas. Uh, another indictment is that of Thomas Lubanga, uh, who was a rebel leader during the Congo Wars here in that area called Ituri. Um, Actually, I testified against him uh, in uh, The Hague about a year and a half ago, uh, which when I'm going to go back to the Turi uh, next month, um, I shall be a little bit careful. Um, but um, he has not been condemned, but he has not been freed. I don't know. You know, I, I wrote to the court and I say, please tell me what is going to be his fate because since I was part of the trial, this has some relevance when I'm over there. Um, so 
the indictments have been incredibly varied and I might even say almost contradictory. Uh, rebels, um, governments, uh, uh, the people asking for in the indictment are also very varied. For example, in Uganda, it was the president who asked for the rebels to be indicted, uh, you know, Museveni. Um, then Charles Taylor was indicted uh, in Liberia uh, by the next government, you know, that said, oh, this one before was very bad. Um, and then some Africans are getting irritated because they say, well, why is it always, you know, Africans who get uh, indicted? Uh, in, uh, um, actually, I, I remember talking to Ocampo about when that was about two, two and a half years ago, that I said, why don't you indict the uh, Burmese generals? You want a few crimes, you want a few horrible characters, uh, you know, and there it's a non-African thing, and uh, they're pretty horrible. Uh, so, um, and he said, oh, I don't know, he gave me some reason that the legal conditions were not, you know, uh, fulfilled, and he couldn't do it, and so on. Um, all in all, I think it's a little bit of a non-event. Because there was a lot of excitement when Bashir got indicted. Because this was before all those revolutions. When, if you were a dictator in the Arab world, it was fine. It was a bed of roses. It was excellent. Um, so the idea that the ICC could do something that nobody else was doing, exactly what the civil societies are doing now, um, was very exciting at the time. And then people waited and waited and waited nothing happened. So uh, it's a little bit, somehow I think Ocampo missed his day. He should have been more active or he should, I, I don't know, I, I'm not a jurist, I, I don't know what he did wrong, but I have a feeling either it was the political cocktail, that, you know, the, the mix that wasn't right or something didn't go. And um, I think in all the events happening now in the Arab world, the only one who could possibly get indicted would be Gaddafi, if he survives. I would advise him to fly very, very quickly to Venezuela, uh, because otherwise, uh, and uh, if he flies to Venezuela and he gets indicted uh, by the ICC, uh, oof, oh my God, I can see another round of big headaches, <laughs> because Chavez will not give him up, uh, and the Americans will scream and uh, to no avail and it's, um, it might be a problem for Chavez because uh, I, I mean in Latin America people really would not understand even those people who support Chavez why the hell do we have to import a dictator a fallen dictator from the Arab world it would be like a very bizarre bizarre thing to do uh, it might be a headache for Chavez himself. But I think the ICC, somehow, maybe they'll have another day, you know, but right now they're at a low point. <laughs> um, my, my question cons concerned... Uh, 
your discussion earlier when you said uh, with regards to you know, what were the flashpoints or what created these situations that we have, say, for example, in Egypt and, uh, and uh, Libya and so forth. And I'm just wondering from your conversation, you said that it, uh, it wasn't driven by uh, what we'll call radical Muslim extremist groups. Okay, they weren't the flashpoint. But yet I'm wondering at, at this point in time, particularly in places like Libya or Yemen, uh, given what you, your potential speculation was, looking into your crystal ball, whether those would be areas where we might see that kind of breakdown, much like we see in parts of Afghanistan or we saw in Iraq, because it, it, sounded, it sounds like from your discussion like we may not have the, a decisive conclusion to what's going on in those places. So maybe if you could speak to that a bit and do a little speculating. It's always very dangerous, you know. My training is as a historian. We look at the past, not at the future. Crystal ball gazing is a very dangerous exercise. <laughs> if you had asked me, you know, uh, let's say six months ago, is the uh, um, Tunisian regime in danger? I would have said no. Ben Ali, oh, he'll still be there in 20 years. <laughs> you see? Um, Egypt, I would have had my doubts, simply because of Mubarak's age. Uh, he was not in good health. He was 82. Uh, so I would have thought that nature taking its course, there was a weakness there. But in terms of Muslim radicals, nope, I would not have seen it coming. Now, if I try to be a little bit stick my neck out to try to answer your question, um, the danger of Islamic extremism in the various countries varies enormously. In Tunisia, it's close to zero. You know, uh, I know Hanoushi, I know his party, and Nahda. I mean, they are basically the Muslim equivalent of what Christian Democrats are, you know, in Germany or, or Italy or Belgium or... Um, Yes, religion is there. It's part of the mix of their political uh, agenda, but it's very mild, very, very mild. Um, the worst part, the most dangerous part, I would, I would uh, think uh, now, uh, would be Yemen. Because Yemen first has very strong Al-Qaeda links, um, plus Ali Abdullah Saleh, has been so obviously in bed with the Americans that uh, you have somebody like uh, Sheikh Zindani. Zindani is the head of, uh, of a radical but legal uh, Islamist party in Yemen. And he was a part-time political ally of Ali Abdullah Saleh. So now that Ali Abdullah Saleh is in dire straits and probably is going to fall, Zindani is trying to redeem himself by saying, oh, Ali Abdullah Saleh, terrible person, I had nothing to do with him. People say, oh, till three months ago? Uh, yeah, well, but it was before. <laughs> so now the temptation is, um, you know, oh, this is terrible, and by the way, Islam, 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 to try to, people don't look too much at the way he collaborated with the dictatorship at some point, you know. Uh, and also, uh, um, um, uh, Osama bin Laden has got his own boys there, really. Um, with a little bit of luck, there will be so much fight, fighting, internecine fight, uh, between 
You know, like the northern uh, Shiite, you know, those, the, the guys, the Houthi who are here, don't talk to them about Al-Qaeda. Because, you know, this is one thing, Al-Qaeda is very anti-Shiite. And, for example, Al-Qaeda has committed terrorist attacks in Iran. And I remember last year I was giving a seminar at uh, MIT uh, on religious and ethnic strife. And I told an American audience, um, Al-Qaeda has been putting bombs in Iran. And I had a kind of you know, look of discouragement on the face of the many people in the audience saying, but these are all bad guys. How come they're fighting each other? Yeah, well, you know, this is the way it happens. Remember the good old communist days? The Chinese and the Russians were not friends, and neither of them were friends of the Americans. You know, so it's not all that simple. So um, Al-Qaeda is definitely strongly anti-Shiite. As a result, Yemen um, might enjoy civil war after the regime crumbles, and in the civil war, um, it will be very muddled. It's not sure that the very strong Muslim radical element which is there would emerge on top. Actually, the likelihood is nobody would emerge on top. There would be no top. There would only be a bottom. You know? This is quite a possibility in Yemen. And then in other countries, it varies. Uh, in Egypt, um, a lot of the Muslim radicals are the milder variety. Some of them are radical. But the radicals are like a small sliver. You know? um, you, uh, in, in Libya, uh, I would have said yes, the Muslim brothers uh, would have a chance. Now, that's not the way it has worked. With the civil war, it's not the way it's working. Um, because um, they simply were not enough of them. They, were, they did not have enough resolve. Uh, a lot of the people who are fighting and getting killed and, you know, uh, are really simple guys with no special political religious affiliation. They're just run-of-the-mill Muslim, you know, like anybody else. Uh, so it's, it varies enormously, country by country. We might see, we might see one place emerge as an Islamist dictatorship. Um, I don't think it's very likely. And if it did, okay, that's the danger you run into any sort of huge transformation like that, you know, and there are, I would call that collateral damage, you know, <laughs> you know a famous expression. Uh, but I don't, it's not very likely, which is in itself a surprise, really. When you think of what, you know, our view of the Muslim world six months ago. Given that the uprisings in Tunisia and Egypt were successful in getting rid of dictators, uh, and now this Libyan event is going on uh, in which the British, the French, and the United States have aligned themselves apparently with the United Arab Emirates and other Arab states to actually bomb Libya. How do you think the, the, the common member of the, uh, the demonstrators who uh, took part in overthrowing the governments in Tunisia and Egypt look upon the participation of essentially the Western alliance with a few uh, fighter planes from the UAE. Uh, how do you think they would look at that? 
Uh, is that going to give them pause uh, as to the participation of the British and French, or do you think they welcome uh, that kind of support from the outside? Uh, the answer is both. And uh, it has to do with other wars, like Afghanistan. Um, this is why the American participation, and you know, I understand, you know, with the nickname that he has acquired recently, you know, the reluctant warrior. Um, I understand his reluctance, because you're up to your neck in Afghanistan in a war you're going to lose. Um, you've already lost the war in Iraq. I don't care how long you stay; it's lost. Uh, I mean, getting another one was not really what he wanted for breakfast. Uh, and at the same time, he was getting kicked in the shins by the Brits and the French. He said, you coward, you know, like, hey, you, you're ten times bigger and stronger than us and you're a coward. So he said, okay, okay, I'll do it a little bit. I'll do my minimum wage bombing. You know? Uh, which was very useful because uh, on Friday when the French picked out all the tanks one by one in the streets of Benghazi, if the anti-aircraft uh, batteries had still been there, we would have lost a few planes. We didn't lose even one plane. And we took the tanks one by one by one, which was very important because otherwise we would have had to bomb, we would have killed a lot of people. There, we did it by rocket fire, flying at very low altitude, taking the tanks out one by one with almost no civilian casualties. And all this hinges on this relationship between military and uh, a moral attitude, which of course is kind of difficult because uh, war is the business of killing. And uh, very often it's not very moral. <laughs> you, know, you just kill because that's your job. And uh, at the same time, people are watching. You know, the, the Islamic world, is their hackles are up, really. It's uh, one of these things, you know, they really, they hate the Americans first, but they hate the West in general. And there, suddenly, you have this thing where in Libya, people are saying, okay, for once, we seem to be doing the right thing. Um, no soldiers. I mean, the insurgents in Benghazi were very clear about it. They say, bomb, yes, please. Soldiers, no. Because they're very conscious of that. They know that the moment they would have uh, NATO soldiers on their side, they might have won the war. They would have lost the peace that will follow. They don't want military help. And they're terrible. I mean, they're the worst guerrillas. I mean, for 40 years I've been in and out of guerrillas all my life. These guys are hopeless. You know, I was reading some, uh, you know, accounts of, of their fighting, you know, they practically talk of shooting yourself in the foot, you know, I mean, <laughs> there it's, it's a literal, <laughs> this is what they're actually doing in some cases. Actually, they had six planes, they managed to shoot down two of them. Their own planes. You know, it's just, they, they're really completely terrible. Uh, they really, really needed help. It's a popular insurrection. I mean, the people who are fighting now are cab drivers and shopkeepers. You know, 
This, this is the truth. I mean, this is what revolution means. It means that ordinary people suddenly feel, I will rather die than go on with this situation. That doesn't mean they're military experts. <laughs> they're not trained soldiers. So there we've just the right mix, you know, knocking out the tanks, killing a few civilians. People say, OK, these are, okay, these are collateral damage. We accept that. Um, the, you know, it, it's for once. We got it right, you know. So uh, I think so far so good. It, it's of course very fragile. We could at any time slip and start doing something silly. Um, so far, it's 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 okay. Uh, and uh, I know that in other countries, people are sort of reluctant. They say, "Is it all right?" And then even in Egypt, you know, I, I have friends in Egypt that I talk with practically uh, at least two or three times a week. They say, yeah, so far it's okay. Be careful. Be careful. <laughs> it's, it's really interesting, you know, because you can follow directly uh, the way people feel. Yes, please. Uh, Gaddafi does go down one way or another soon, whether he's killed or goes to Venezuela or somehow he leaves. What kind of government might we expect to take his place? You know, we know the rebels are fighting. I don't know, and I've wondered, you know, will the replacement be any better? I, I, I just, is there any past uh, history? You know, I know you are the historian more than the crystal ball. Is there precedent for this sort of thing in terms of what we might expect when someone like him does finally leave the stage? Actually, it's a, it's a very difficult question, and uh, you put your finger on something very sore and difficult. Um, 42 years of dictatorship, you know? Nothing, nothing, nothing is left behind. First of all, it was a colony, right? And the Italians were not exactly nice colonizers. You know, Benito Mussolini, uh, was not exactly the father of democracy. Uh, so he goes, pop, you know. Uh, the Brits and the Americans who had occupied uh, Libya during the war don't know what to do. 1949, they say, well, we got to do something. The war's been over for four years. <laughs> Are we going to stay here forever? By the way, there was no oil at the time. They did not know. So <laughs> at the time, is, let's leave this country, which has no natural resources. <laughs> Little did they know. Uh, so what did they do? They picked up a sheikh of, you know, this, this part, which is now the insurgent part, um, uh, which uh, from a Muslim brotherhood called the Senusiya. The Senusiya is a very strange brotherhood. It extends clear across the, the, the Sahara all the way into Chad. You have Senusi all the way down to the Central African Republic. It's a very, you see, it, it's along this line, the presence of the Senusia, which has a historical base here. Uh, they're all along this line. And lo and behold, you know what it materializes, this line? Slave trade. This was one, you know, the main lines of the slave trade, you had one going like this, this way across the Sahara. I mean, I'm talking about the Muslim slave trade, not the Western, uh, not the American and uh, European. Um, another one like this, from here down to the, the, up to the coast, and one from southern Sudan here, 
and all the way to here, and, uh, and then down the Nile uh, to uh, Alexandria. And these are the three. So the Senusia was, uh, was a brotherhood which was involved in the slave trade uh, up to uh, almost the end of the 19th century, almost to 1900. And um, the Americans and the Brits picked the sheikh of the Senusia, called him king and said, you're the king of Libya. <laughs> He's the guy who was the king till 1969 when Gaddafi overthrew him. King Idris. He died in Monte Carlo, surrounded by beautiful women and playing the roulette. So, um, you know, there was a certain way of life. He was a devout Muslim. Uh, and um, so uh, I'm afraid we might have to do it again. There's no political parties, no nothing. It is not impossible that we pull out of our pocket another Senussi and say, this man is now the president or whatever. Of course, we won't call him king, because in 1949 you could still do that. Nowadays it's kind of not politically correct. But there is nothing. Emptiness. You have a few opponents, but there are men... You know, Mr. Karzai in Afghanistan is a widely popular leader compared to that. <laughs> you know, so that shows you the extent of our difficulty. I'd just like to ask about France. Um, you know, the French you just talked about have done uh, a lot with uh, blowing up tanks and so on. You just gave us wonderful images of what's happening. Um, why are the French involved in this and they weren't involved in Iraq or Afghanistan? Is it just a cool determination of where they can be successful? Um, you know, why are the French there? Why were they not in other places? Very simple. As usual, internal politics. Uh, let me tell you, President uh, Sarkozy doesn't give a damn about any of these shows. Uh, but he's up for a very, very, very difficult re-election next year. And uh, each time he has ventured into foreign policy, it's just the opposite of America. In America, your business is domestic. Um, people who go for foreign adventures, usually it's a lot of trouble. Um, for Sarkozy, it worked. Uh, when he brokered that peace between Georgia and Russia, uh, which, by the way, is terrible. It was a, a diplomatic heresy covered in stupidity, but the French said, oh, wonderful. Uh, so he gained about almost 8 or 9% in approval ratings. He's doing it again. That's all. That's all. Don't look for anything else. He's looking at the election of 2012. Excuse me? Oh, no, 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 but Obama is an intellectual. My president is a mechanical rabbit. <laughs> I was just wondering if the uh, countries that have been the center of the Islamic conflicts, um, do they teeter on the verge of nationalism explosion, or are they going to be forever stuck in this punch-drunk state that they seem to find themselves in? I'm, I'm kind of thinking like Iraq how it's got such a diverse population in Palestine and Israel, and also like in regard to Afghanistan. Do you think they're going to be stuck uh, in that? Could you uh, sort of focus your question more on something? Because there, as you were speaking, it got broader and broader. 
Yes, uh, just the religious aspects mm. of the conflicts that have been taking place within these countries. Do you think they're going to be stuck in that kind of punch-drunk state internally, or do you think there will be a national revival within those countries at any time? You mean the ones that did not take part in any Correct. change? Uh, well, that is really a question of how long does it take you to digest a very heavy meal? Uh, I know, you know, I spent the last nine years in Ethiopia. I know they have not yet digested the period of the civil war and the Derg communist regime. Um, this is the great strength of the present regime. Each time somebody wants to do anything, they say, remember the bad old days when there were dead bodies everywhere in the streets? And people say, oh, no, we don't want that again. You know, um, the, you know, there is, you know, it's like in the lives of human beings. A very strong, terrible, traumatic experience can paralyze you if you're again in circumstances that remind you of the bad experience you had before. You know, in very, very ordinary common terms, it's called fear of driving after a car crash, you know. Uh, I won't do it again because I, I'm getting paralyzed when it happens. Um, and this is the same for countries. If the trauma has been very big, in the case of Ethiopia, it was half a million dead, um, it takes a long time to get over that hangover. Uh, blood hangover is worse than alcohol hangover. And uh, in the case of Algeria and the Sudan, I don't know. I really don't know. Um, in, in the Sudan, they might get over it more quickly because most of the casualties were in the south. When I say one and a half million, I'm talking mostly of the south. Darfur, you know, which is uh, here, you know, um, about 300,000 casualties. The problem is the war is not over. You know, we didn't talk about that because we hardly mentioned the Sudan. But the war in Darfur is going on right now. Have you noticed, by the way, you remember a couple of years ago, people were saying Darfur, Darfur. I was brought to America five or six times to give lectures on Darfur. Nobody thinks about it anymore. The war is worse than it was two years ago. Nobody talks about it. It's gone. You know, there is, I mean, uh, modern men are like children. Very short attention span. You know, CNN is focalized right now. CNN is here. The rest of the world's gone. Uh, Darfur is not interested. You know, when in, in the Congo War, which is the worst conflict since World War II, you had almost four million casualties. Nobody noticed them. They went almost unheeded. Four million. Can you imagine? You know? Uh, so... All dead bodies don't have the same weight. Some are very heavy because they're in the news, because they trigger something. Uh, you know, you put a bomb in Israel and you kill three people, big news. You can kill 10,000 people in Darfur, it doesn't matter. You know? It's all very relative. Uh, so how long will it get for the Sudanese to get over their trauma, their shock, I don't know. Um, but it could be before Algeria, because Algeria, the, the, the war was really here in the, 
you know, in the heavily populated areas. It was not like here this was a rural guerrilla, and plus a lot of people starved, and, and the Arabs considered it was like a foreign country. It was such a foreign country, it's now a separate country, it's an independent one. Uh, by the way, not till July 9th. We might have bad surprises between now and July 9th. Um, and um, there in Algeria, it was not the same. It was in, you know, like heavily populated areas with a lot, you know, people are still completely traumatized. And there were lots of bombs put in the cities uh, with a lot of casualties, you know, among ordinary people. Like you, you go buy, uh, you know, some bread and a little bit of sugar at the corner store and you're turned into mincemeat. And that was a common occurrence. So um, it's um, still under shock. <laughs> I, I think Professor Johnson said one or two more. <laughs> okay, thank you. Um, you had made the statement uh, earlier that um, Jordan was kind of a stable type country. I guess in regards to the refugee camps, like inside of Jordan, like the Baka refugee camp and these types of things, um, I'm just wondering how, to me, like Baca refugee camp isn't like a stable place, right? I mean, it's poverty. There's almost 100,000 Palestinians stacked up on top of each other in little, little cement boxes, right? Um, if I'm wrong, you know, and that is a stable country, which I don't believe that it is, how does that, how does that play in the, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in terms of the way that the Israelis are are looking at these developments unfolding. There, if, if we go into the Israeli thing, it's a, it's a completely another thing. You, you, you remember the bomb last week in Israel? Yeah, there's a, it was a small uh, terrorist attack, about one person killed and six or seven wounded. But it was the first one in an Israeli city for at least five years. And uh, it's a Hamas job. And it's because Hamas, you know, there, I didn't even mention that because there we are getting into very complicated situations. Hamas is an Arab authority or quasi-state in a way because it runs the Palestinian authority. And it is now being challenged from under exactly like every other Arab regime. No matter the fact that they say our main enemy is not, you know, is not, we are good guys, this is the Israelis, you know, blah, 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 the Israelis over there. You, you, you want to kill them, kill them. People say, yeah, you now are here and you're managing us. And actually, although you're not a real state, you're a quasi-state, you're no better than the others. You're corrupt, you're pocketing the money, you're draining foreign aid for your own benefit, and so on. And they say, hey, wait, wait, we're freedom fighters, we're liberators. How can you talk to us that way? And the ordinary Palestinians are saying, yeah, we talk that way because that's what you are. So, I mean, you can imagine this thing. They're supposed to direct all their anger and, and um, political movement against Israel, and they are being challenged by, from down under their feet, you know. So they organized this little attempt and killed a few Israelis in order to try to shift the focus from themselves to the real enemy, quote-unquote. You know? So uh, when you say that uh, Jordan is not a stable state, yes and no. I mean, right now, 
no state in the Arab world, and possibly in the broader Muslim context, is stable. None. Not one. The most stable ones are the more recent dictatorship, like in Central Asia, you know, like Kyrgyzstan and so on. Um, nobody's challenging them because they're still so happy to see that the Russians are gone. Then people say, all right, all right, you're a terrible tyrant, but at least you're one of us. You're not Russian. Uh, and um, in the case of, uh, of Jordan, the monarchy is a little bit reformist. They've been a little bit open to... Uh, and when there were demonstrations, there were demonstrations in Jordan. Um, it was about pay for teachers, you know. I sympathize with that. Teachers are terribly over, underpaid. So I've been a lifelong teacher, and I was terribly underpaid. Uh, so uh, in any country, this is always a good fight. Uh, but, um, you know, the king immediately said, all right, send me the unions, I'll talk with them. This was not Mubarak. This was not Ben Ali, you know. Like uh, in, in, in Tunis, or it's like, you don't like it, we're going to shoot you. You know, let's not even talk of Gaddafi who says, I will crush all these insects. You know, I love his vocabulary. Uh, so <clears throat> you cannot imagine the king of Jordan saying, I will crush you insects. You know, it's, it's definitely much more civilized than that. It's not perfect. It's not a democracy. <clears throat> but you have Islamists, for example, in parliament. You know, uh, that is perhaps only a safety valve. Perhaps it's a cosmetic job, but it's better than a slap in the face. You know? So it's not stable, but it's not too fragile. My question is about the recent activities in the Ivory Coast. I am wondering whether or not you see the United Nations sanctions along with the million refugees in combination with the increasing persecution against the Muslim population would add the Ivory Coast to the list of problematic states that you've discussed tonight. Actually, it's a very good question that you're putting on the floor, although we're getting out of the Arab world. But it's because it's a comparison and it's... Um, a reasonable one. And the answer is probably not. Why? And I think it has to do, uh, you know, I've been groping for the meaning of all this. It has to do with the uh, gap between the political functioning and the political expectations. Um, all these revolutions happening in the Arab world would have been unthinkable 20 years ago. Why is it that now they are more than thinkable? They're all over the place. 20 years ago, they were not on the table. Something has happened in the meantime. And that something has not happened in black Africa. I mean, I'm much more experienced of black Africa than the Arab world. It has not happened there. You know, you have a few countries where it is beginning to happen, like in Kenya, for example. Uh, Ivory Coast, it could have happened, it was on the way, but after the death of Oufouet Boigny, you know, Conan Bédier just made things walk backwards. Um, then also, it's a very bizarre country. Almost 40% of the population is not native, you know. Uh, you, you must be aware of that because you mentioned it in your remark. Huh? Um, 
all these Muslim groups in the north actually are people from Burkina Faso and from other places. And in a strange way, given the fact that the Ivory Coast was one of the richer African countries, they have behaved and played the role that the Algerians are playing in France, that the Mexicans are playing in this country, um, that the Turks are playing in Germany, you know, the Gestarbeiter, and uh, people who come from outside and do all the dirty work. And, um, and the attitude, you know, this is where it's so interesting. Racism, especially when it's based on economic reason, has no color, you know. Uh, there it's black on black, but it's completely racist attitude. It's like Mr. Le Pen and the National Front in France. No better. Uh, except, you know, like Ouattara, nobody wanted Ouattara to run for president because they say he's one of these dirty northern Muslims. He's not even an Ivorian. He's a Burkinabe, you know. And uh, so the, the, the country is in a very, very difficult kind of... Uh, and I think that this expectation level, which is so evident in the Arab world, which is behind all these revolutions, does not exist there. Unfortunately, the level of the political functioning in a country like the Ivory Coast is that of the Arab world of 1950. You know? So the revolutions are coming because of the gap. People want something, they're ready for something, they can do something, and the government was saying, no, 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 no. Shut up and vote for me in rigged elections. And then, poof, the whole thing is going. Um, maybe you'll have such phenomenon in black Africa in 2050 or 2060. In 1950, all what we're seeing would have been impossible. Impossible. You know, history makes things change, and, and so there is at times a contradiction between a structure and a certain way of doing things. After all, the Americans were very happy to be British till 1776. And then at one point they said, no, we don't want to be anymore. And the, the King of England said, oh, why not? <laughs> you know? And uh, then it went boom, you know, um, when the time is ripe. I don't think in black Africa the time is yet ripe. That's to answer what you wanted to ask. Okay, uh, I'm going to Tunisia in two weeks. Okay. I want to see it after.